I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That entrance music was ridiculous, and it was Pandora's idea. The last time we had Baby Shark, so I think it's an improvement. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalist Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes, live from the Pandora flagship store in Marble Arch. Welcome! March is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month and we are thrilled to be partnering with Pandora and Overcome, the ovarian cancer support charity. All ticket sales from tonight's event are going towards Overcome, which we are thrilled about. Pandora have also created an international Women's Day charm, which will be available to purchase through March with 20% of all the charm sales also being donated to Overcome. I would like to kick off this episode by wishing a uh, happy birthday to the best baby in the world, um, who is not the high-low, but it's, of course, Zadie. <laughs> Imagine if that was me. <laughs> I'm not your baby. Um, yes, all the feels. We'll dedicate this episode to Zadie. Um, I cannot believe she's one today. And our other baby, a.k.a. the high-low, turned two yesterday. I know. So, aside from all the toddler birthdays this week... A family-friendly shooting range in Merseyside has been condemned for using a picture of Shamima Begum on its target. Ultimate Airsoft Range said it provides targets of a lot of public figures, including Donald Trump, Adolf Hitler and Justin Bieber. Not quite sure what Justin Bieber did to end up there. Breaking news, entire UK and Ireland tour for Ryan Adams has now been cancelled. People were unsurprisingly requesting refunds for their tickets for his UK and Ireland tour and venues were initially refusing to issue the refunders as the promoter had confirmed the tour was still going ahead. That has now completely been cancelled. It's quite interesting that because I was reading about the, like, legalese and logistics of it, Mm. and it's quite hard until something's been proved in court to give any kind of, what is it, it's sort of like a moral clause. Yeah. Like, third parties, i.e. the Royal Albert Hall, don't have to have any kind of morality clause. So I wonder who it was that stepped in. I do feel a bit bad for the Royal Albert Hall. I think the Royal Albert Hall will be right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it survived quite a long time. It will carry on to uh, prosper. Also this week, 28 women marched across Westminster Bridge on Tuesday, dragging suitcases filled with the names of 62,000 signatories behind them in protest against Northern Ireland's abortion laws. Ireland's abortion ban was repealed last year, but Northern Ireland's remains. The 28 is symbolic. 28 women travel to the UK every week to have abortions. The protest was organised by Amnesty International and it included stars of Channel 4's Derry Girls. And you have been to Copenhagen, Dolly, my favourite place, land of the beautiful people. My husband actually calls the men Vikings. My God, they are. They are so beardy. (laughs) Only city I've been in where I feel like of average height. I thought you were about to say it's the only city I've been in where I feel averagely attractive. (laughs) Finally, I'm with my people. It's actually the only city I've been in when I would say that the men are almost more attractive than the women. Not going to lie, most places I, I go, think I think... all super hot. All the men and women. And all of them my height, if not taller. And that is so rare when you're a woman of six foot. And I wanted to, like, cuddle into the shoulders and chests and bosoms <laughs> of all of them. Because you, like, petite little girls don't know what it's like. <laughs> you never get to, like, snuggle on someone, but... You couldn't do that to any random Dane. Um, but no, it was really, really lovely. And they were there are... for the Danish, Danish leg of the Everything yes. I Know About Love tour. I was there promoting the book in Danish. And uh, as you can probably tell from my voice, I've kind of been made ill by talking about female friendship. 
for so it's long. It's a toxic thing. It's a toxic thing that has finally broken me. But no, it's lovely. And actually, talking about how beautiful they are, I was like, what is it about them? Everything just looks stylish and clean and all their faces are so beautiful. And then my Danish publisher told me that all dental care is paid for in Denmark. So that's why they all have such great faces. Whereas in England, <laughs> we're known for our terrible teeth. Are we? Yeah, that's what we're known for. Compared to other countries in Europe? Yeah, we're known for having terrible teeth and drinking too much and not being able to express our emotions. It's terrible being English, basically. <laughs> and for talking about the weather a lot. And talking about the weather. One, another thing I found out, which I found endlessly pleasing there are danish crime thrillers that we're all obsessed with like borgen and um the killing there is a huge huge fan base in denmark particularly with millennials for inspector morse (laughs) poirot a touch of frost and midsummer murders oh i love midsummer Murders. apparently it's like massive over there and then i tweeted it and anna leskovich from the new statesman said that even more mind-bogglingly in Finland, the most popular TV show is Keeping Up Appearances. Hi, Cynthia. Yeah, and apparently on the Finnish I version of the Radio Times, it's like all these pictures of Hyacinth Bouquet all the time. So, yeah, that's, that's what I learned. <laughs> What's in the mailbag this week, Dolly? Sadly, you don't have your physical mailbag with you. No, I don't. Form. I know, and, and I couldn't get it in the Uber. It was so heaving. Thank you to all the listeners who got in touch to wish the Hilo toddler a happy birthday. There were a couple of emails in response to last week's author special with Candice Carty-Williams, who wrote the amazing Queenie. One listener wrote in to share how the discussion around friendships and the phenomenon of the strong friend resonated with her. I am often that figure for my group at home, and I can empathise so much with what Candy said as how draining it can get when friends see you as the only one to whom they can unload every negative aspect of their lives. Friendships are such tricky waters to navigate, especially growing up, and although I'm only in my early 20s, I find myself, sadly and perhaps a little irrationally, jaded and resigned at the sight of one of my old friends calling me up, inevitably to discuss their life, not mine. How bitter I am. I'm all for open discussion, but wish that friendships could be more open about care for all members and understand that everyone has their own problems. That's interesting. I don't think that's particularly the territory of old friends, though. I think that's just like the push and pull of friendship. Yeah, I think, like, I think you basically take turns to parent each other, and a good friendship is when you kind of can sense that. And, and also, I think something that's rubbish as you get older is life is like really stressful and shit for most people all the time <laughs> so you have to just like it, everyone's dealing with something so well, what's you... your t- I loved the term that you taught me about a year ago emotional supremacy yeah so yeah. you know no one has like the right to express themselves over someone else so I would say maybe to this Hilo listener that wrote in that perhaps it's more that she's now got not a chip on her shoulder but yeah. something in her head that's making her feel like oh you're talking about yourself again maybe they're sensing that you're being reticent yeah exactly and she might be she may be projecting what have you been enjoying I was just thinking week? about us we share it don't we we share it share the load yeah I think so well now would not be a good time to bring it up if either, <laughs> if either of us have resentments well I was, as I was reading that aloud I was thinking about all my friendships and I was like what about me and Panda but I think we take turns for who's allowed to be the diva well like you said it's definitely not something we'll discuss here <laughs> No, we do. What have you been enjoying this week? I, uh, from my six, six, sex bed, six bed, sick bed this morning. I do not want to know about your sex bed. That does not exist, don't worry. Um, from my sick bed this morning, I was watching Russian Doll on Netflix. Who else Ooh, has watched Russian yes. Doll? So good, isn't it? It's, and for anyone who hasn't watched it, it's an existential comedy drama made by and starring Natasha Leone. I think that's how I say her surname. Yeah. And she is a red-headed, red-blooded, tough-talking New Yorker. And she, I think, produced it as well alongside Amy Poehler. It's kind, initially, I found it um, quite frustrating because it's quite high concept. In the first episode, her character is hit by a car on her 36th birthday. And then at the moment of apparent death, she repeats the beginning of the night. So she's trapped in some sort of time loop and she doesn't know how or why she got there or what it is. And yeah, initially I just found it, the concept wasn't quite enough to keep me compelled. And I always find those things that I think 
I find them quite frustrating. I get this a little bit with Black Mirror as well, that if it's like so high concept, it doesn't draw me in and whet my appetite. It actually just makes me want to go watch Friends. <laughs> so, but the reason I carried on watching is her performance is so amazing. She's so charismatic and filthy and flawed. And actually, like seeing a woman of her age, this should not this should not be radical, but a woman of her age and and her kind of stature and the way that she carries herself and the way that she talks and the way that she curses, you don't normally see that as a protagonist for like a mainstream show, particularly on Netflix. So I loved that. And there was an an infuriatingly brilliant ending that was a bit like, we haven't talked about Catastrophe, that's for another episode, but it was a bit like the ending of of this series of Catastrophe that's open to so many different interpretations. And obviously I went into, (laughs) into the black holes of the internet today on Reddit to try and work out what it is. And there are so many different theories. Well, what, what, how many parts is it? It's eight episodes. And I'm not, I won't say anymore because I don't want to give spoilers, but it's, um, it's, it's really stylish. And the way that her characterization and her friend's characterization and the clothes, ev- the way it's shot, everything about it feels like a kind of 80s B movie. It's like a stylish, witty, cool show. I think you'll really like it. I also, this is so on brand for me, and I think you're going to love it. I listen to a Radio 4 programme called The Secret Life of Spaghetti, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is on the food programme, which, to my shame, I'm only just becoming familiar with. But I researched the history of it today, and it's been going since 1979. And it's a kind of documentary-style programme. On Radio 4. The food programme. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great one. It's uh, documentary-style stories about food, the food industry, production and consumption. Sometimes it's topical. I think the latest one is about palm oil and whether we should be consuming palm oil, which is a very kind of complicated matter. Complicated and controversial, but kind of controversial whilst not taking notice of all the complications. Exactly. uh, For a lot of foodstuffs, they haven't found something to supplement it. So those would just all be taken off the shelves yeah and actually there are there are so many layers to what the environmental impact would be if we did stop producing it full stop so it it is something i want to know more about there was also a brilliant episode right before christmas where diana henry who's a brilliant food writer interviewed nigella lawson and i think it's the most kind of relaxed an intimate interview I've heard with Nigella Lawson in her kitchen at home, which I loved. But The Secret Life of Spaghetti is Italian food journalist Dan Saladino looking at Britain's relationship to spaghetti and um, in particular spaghetti bolognese because spaghetti bolognese came over here at some point in the middle of last century and became this kind of comfort food in America and here, the spag bowl. But actually the origins of the of the of the ragu in Bologna (laughs) I can see that I may be losing people in the audience here Um, is a very different dish so um, he's kind of you can't eat bolognese what do you eat oh um, this is uh, if anyone wants to know Gizzy Erskine does the best vegan bolognese recipe of all time but we'll save that for another podcast Um, but no this is a brilliant episode where he researches how it's been misappropriated and actually it becomes this really nice more extended conversation about food snobbery and how does it really matter that what English people and American people, what we love and what is our kind of often our family recipes and even in some of our best Italian restaurants is nothing like the the original recipe Mm. in Italy. And it all culminates with um, his father, who's Italian, makes this very 1970s spag bowl with like carrot and mushrooms and like I think a touch of ketchup in it. And then (laughs) they get the Bocca di Lupo chef to to do like an original tomatoless slow cooked ragu and then they'd serve it at a pop up and do a vote on what people liked. It's a lovely, lovely program. Yeah, yeah. A, a ragu is is has very little, if any, tomato in and it has milk in. Milk. I know, and it's never served on spaghetti. It should be served on a pasta that has a wider purchase to carry the <laughs> carry the meat sauce but I'm sounding like Alan Partridge so I'm going to ask you what you've been uh, listening to and reading you actually really do sound like him Um, (laughs) thank you so much to everyone who pledged to read my pound project essay I'm really sorry I felt wanging on about it it doesn't come easily to Dolly and I to blast our personal projects through the mouthpiece of the Hilo but it's our podcast and we'll rinse it if we have to we'll wang if we want to (laughs) we'll wang if we want to 
I've been listening to some great podcasts this week. You, Me and the Big C. Oh, I've always wanted to listen to I that. I started listening to it after I read a beautiful and very moving interview with Rachel Bland's widow. She was the BBC presenter who sadly passed away in September from breast cancer. Rachel was the co-host along with Lauren McMahon, a.k.a. the brilliant Girl vs. Cancer, and Deborah James. The three came together to transform the conversation about cancer. They felt like the dialogue was not that honest and quite patchy for example one of the things they said that I found really interesting is I can't remember which of the girls it was but one of them had said that she had heard that if you had breast cancer it wasn't painful so when she had a painful lump in her breast she thought well it can't be cancer and that's exactly the same as what my sister had she was diagnosed with breast cancer almost two years ago and she also had a very painful lump she thought because that kind of myth persisted yeah I think I've heard that yeah and it's and it's not true so there's a lot of myth busting there's a lot of humor there's a lot of just really like honest talk and I wanted to start from the beginning because I've seen that it's you know been quite high up in the charts I think a lot of people are now coming to it posthumously it's it's carrying on which I think is immensely brave and wonderful of the other two presenters Deborah and Lauren but I've kind of got that feeling of knowing that you know, I'm going to get to an episode where Rachel's not going to be part of it. But it feels right to start from the yeah. beginning and to yeah, hear I her agree. story in her own words. So I really, really recommend that. I think that cancer is a word that covers actually so many different diseases. We sometimes don't realise that cancer is just sort of like a catch-all term for essentially a mutation. So it's great to hear of the myriad forms and myriad responses and emotions attached to that so yeah I really recommend that um not to repeat content but I've been listening to on Dolly's recommendation Zadie Smith on the Toray show and it's a life changer isn't it? it's a life-changing episode it's it's like one of the first podcast interviews that I've listened to that I almost press into the into the hands of people in the same way that you do with your favorite book yeah I know I really want to kind of just send it to everyone now but now but I'll be sad if they don't reply to my link I feel like quite personally invested in it I think I feel a bit like how that Johan Hari podcast felt for you because of how it made you feel about intrinsic and extrinsic which I've had in my brain all week because of you but she said a few things that I really wanted to pull out because they just resonated so much with me first on reading as an addiction she said it's considered a sanctioned addiction because it's cultured so no one ever criticizes it But she says, you know, it's still an addiction. You're still doing it to the detriment of other things. And you feel sick if you can't do it. And I realized, yeah, I am addicted to reading. A lot of people say, how can you read as much as you do? And I say, oh, well, I don't go to the gym and I don't cook. And actually, I am addicted to it. I have I remember. I remember you saying to me at at one point, I think it was when Zadie was really little, you were roaring through books. And I said that is amazing. Are you okay? <laughs> because it was so many. And you said, I think I am using it at the moment as a, as a bit of an escape, but I think that's okay. And when I listened to that interview, I did think about, because I, I think the way she phrased it, she said, she says it's, it's, an it's still a way of not being in your life. Yeah. And she said, it's not that different to Instagram in that way or scrolling through. I mean, obviously it is different. No, because you're presenting yourself into a different world. And I also think, I was talking about it with my mum and I am the youngest of four children. So I sort of almost grew up as an only child and I read all the time and I wonder how much time I spent inhabiting you know Ina Blyton's world or Roald Dahl's world because when I think of my childhood I think of reading these books yeah, yeah I don't yeah, think yeah. of just like doing the outside world yeah, I doing have exactly the thing. same thing you think about the kind of internal imagination rather than the memories <laughs> and I think that's like a wonderful thing yeah. I don't I don't have a problem being addicted to books like I'm okay with being addicted to books but the only thing with an addiction is that you do feel sick when you can't do it. So it's like quite a lot of maintenance. And then she said something else that did really relate to that whole extrinsic, intrinsic thing, which was she said that in the modern world, we have a childish preoccupation with applause. Oh, yeah. And, that and she said her and her brothers have all chosen careers that basically when you boil it down, it's just seeking applause. But she said that she'd really overcome that. She said there's no amount of clapping that's going to make you a happy person. And I think that's really, really true and that is that extrinsic isn't it and, yeah. that, and I imagine that's why she's made a lot of choices like to have a I think her Nokia is from 1999 isn't it I know I mean that's I yearn to get to that point of having a 1999 mm. sort of flip phone mm. um 
but I found that incredibly powerful. I've actually still got about 15 minutes to go. I'm like really eking it out, getting a little more. Every time each day. you listen to it, I still listen to it now when I need. You it love comfort. repeating podcasts, don't you? Yeah, because I do think that it's like reading a favorite book again. Every time I listen to that Zadie interview, I do pick up something new that she says. So it's rare for her to do podcasts, no? And interviews. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that chemistry between her and that and Therese. Because they're really good friends. Is that, are they good friends? Yeah, they've been life? friends for 20 years. Yeah, it's so when just, they met, it makes such a difference. And he said, and I loved it, because he didn't do that thing, which I imagine is why she was comfortable to come on. He didn't do that thing of being like, we have Zadie Smith. He was like, I've got my friend Zadie. Yeah, he was quite she wrote, He said yeah. she writes awesome novels and dope essays. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I love that. Like, she us. does. She writes awesome novels and dope yeah. essays. So it was a really comfortable conversation to listen to. On the other hand, I have watched some excruciating television this week. Go on. I've watched the UK version of Camping. Regular listeners of the High Low will know that I recently watched the US version of Camping. And the UK edition is, oh my God, truly uncomfortable to watch. It's just that classic Julia Davis. Oh, I want to watch it now. Sort of like unbelievably... Not depressing, but just, like, discomforting. And then I also watched the first episode of the new Alan Partridge. I've never watched Alan Partridge before. I've seen that a lot of people are saying that this is, like, not vintage Alan Partridge and it's not as good as Alpha Papa or everything like that. (laughs) But I really, really enjoyed it because it's, like, a spoof of sort of the one show. Yeah, it's meant to be, like, a magazine talk show. And it's had incredible reviews. All the newspapers and stuff have given it five-star reviews but i've heard that it's it's almost like not satirical enough that it feels like quite naturalistic it's subtle but i i think it's subtlety is it's is its greatest strength yeah yeah. your friend um lolly adafope is in it as well oh is she yeah she plays a newsreader that has like a really frustrating conversation with Alan Partridge in it. She's but very, very funny. I think you'll really like it. But I'm going to go back and watch the old stuff. I always thought it really wasn't for me. Oh, it's brilliant. So you've watched all the old stuff? Yeah, I've got a little brother. Like, that's literally the only way that yeah, we communicated when we were teenagers, was sitting in front of Alan Partridge wearing a pair of leather pants. You were wearing leather pants? No, no, we weren't wearing leather pants. That would be highly inappropriate. Alan Partridge was wearing leather pants. Tell me about your next recommendation. (laughs) I loved a piece on Man Repeller about dating advice from older women. So three um, first-generation immigrant women in New York who were in their, I think it was one in their 60s, one in their 70s, one in her 80s, talked about their dating history and um, their advice for young women now. Um, My favourite was a 70-year-old New Yorker called Amy because she was so reverent and I just want to read out part of her segment as I think some of you and certainly you Dolly will enjoy it I've edited it down for the sake of time but you can read the full story on Man Repeller and I'll link it in the show notes I was born in Hong Kong I was a surprise baby my mother was in her 40s I was the baby of the family and I was spoiled rotten when I was in college I fell in love with two people at the same time Mel was an intellectual doing theatre Richard was a hippie who drank tea and meditated I had a choice to make and I went with Mel the intellectual We moved to Berkeley in the 70s. Eventually we separated, but he was my best friend, my first love. After Mel, I went out with Mick Jagger. I'm a lyric in Some Girls. The Chinese girl referenced as me. I was painted. I've had books dedicated to me. I had a poem written about me. Today, I fall in love with people all the time. First of all, Richard, the hippie from Michigan and I, are still going. He lives in India and came to visit me last year. I had sex at 68. That was weird. I think love today is very impersonal. When you're talking to someone, you have a phone in your hand, so I just don't think it's as intimate. I think it's more innocent. America has become more provincial in many ways. Everybody is so scared. If I could do it all over again, I'd tell myself, don't go with your heart because you'll get hurt. Always fall in love with your brain. Falling in love with a friend and becoming lovers is so safe. But maybe I'm just a chicken shit. I love that. I've got to read the whole article. <laughs> it reminds me of a piece I loved during the high lows break in January, which was in the New York Times called um, The Joy of Being a Woman in Her 70s, which ah. I highly recommend as well. It's a glorious piece and you can read that online. Support for the high low comes from Pandora UK. 
it's finally happening after years of being tagged in people's jewellery posts on Instagram, and very lovely they are too, we are working with my doppelganger. As my friend said, this might be the best partnership that's ever happened to us, and I think they may be right. I think they'd be right too, and not just because you match names, but because of their brilliant new charitable partnership. From the 15th of February to the 31st of March, the jewellery brand Pandora UK will be selling an international Women's Day charm, a sterling silver tulip flower which can be worn on a necklace, bangle or bracelet, where 20% of each sale will go to Overcome. Overcome is the UK's ovarian cancer support charity, providing help to 18,000 people affected by the disease every single year. March is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month and the 8th of March is International Women's Day and the partnership will be running over both. Ovarian cancer is the most common cause of gynaecological cancer death in the UK with 4,271 women losing their life to the disease every year. Around 7,400 cases of ovarian cancer are diagnosed per annum and the disease has a very low survival rate. Screening tests for this type of cancer still do not exist, so raising awareness of the common symptoms is vital in order to prevent late diagnosis of the disease. Head to your local store or visit pandora.net to learn more about the partnership with Overcome. Thank you very much to Pandora UK. Perhaps give you that one. This week, Emma Thompson cemented herself as everyone's favourite dame when she wrote an open letter to the LA Times, which has, of course, gone viral, explaining why she has stepped down from an animated project because the company making the film has hired a man fired from a studio for allegations of sexual assault by multiple women. John Lasseter was fired by Disney in June 2018, but has recently been recruited by Skydance Animation, who are making Luck, a comedy about how luck affects our daily lives, which Emma Thompson was attached to until she quit. I'll read out Emma's letter here. As you know, I have pulled out of the production of Luck to be directed by the very wonderful Alessandra Coloni. It feels very odd to me that you and your company would consider hiring someone with Mr. Lasseter's pattern of misconduct given the present climate in which people with this kind of power that you have can reasonably be expected to step up to the plate. I realise that this situation is complicated. However, these are the questions I would like to ask. If a man has been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work for him if the only reason he's not touching them inappropriately now is that it says in his contract that he must behave professionally? If a man has made women at his companies feel undervalued and disrespected for decades, why should the women at his new company think that the respect he shows them is anything other than an act that he's been required to perform by his coach, his therapist, and his employment agreement? The message seems to be, I'm learning to feel respect for women, so please be patient while I work on it. It's not easy. Much has been said about giving John Lasseter a second chance, but he is presumably being paid millions of dollars to receive that second chance. How much money are the employees at Skydance being paid to give him that second chance? If John Lasseter started his own company, then every employee would have been given the opportunity to choose whether or not to give him a second chance. But any Skydance employees who do not want to give him a second chance have to stay and be uncomfortable or lose their jobs. Shouldn't it be John Lasseter who has to lose his job? if the employees don't want to give him a second chance. Skydance has revealed that no women receive settlements from Pixar or Disney as a result of being harassed by John Lasseter. But given all the abuse that's been heaped on women who have come forward to make accusations against powerful men, do we really think that no settlements means that there was no harassment or no hostile work environment? Are we supposed to feel comforted that women who feel that their careers were derailed by working for Lasseter didn't receive money? I hope these queries make the level of my discomfort understandable. She then goes on to say, I can only do what feels right during these difficult times of transition and collective consciousness raising. I am well aware that centuries of entitlement to women's bodies, whether they like it or not, is not going to change overnight or in a year. But I am also aware that if people who have spoken out, like me, do not take this sort of stand, then things are very unlikely to change at anything like the pace required to protect my daughter's generation. I just think that's such a courageous step and such a perfectly worded and fluent letter that articulates so much about not just how wrong it is that this man was hired for this film, but also the hypocrisies within his repentance and re-employment. 
What I really value about this letter, which the Time's Up movement has called Walk the Walk, as opposed to just Talk the Talk, yeah. is that what she's, Emma Thompson says is that it's not that the people cannot have a second chance but that it's the expectation that everyone should want to give them a second chance. And that we should all accommodate that second chance when by default. When it's not reflected fiscally. And of course, money is important. This is, this is business. Much has been said about giving John Lester a second chance, but he is presumably being paid millions of dollars to receive that second chance. And the employees at Skydance are not receiving any money to give him that second chance. So I like the way she put it in like fiscal business terms, because yeah. I think it really laid it out in quite a Hollywood way of of, of the transaction of it. And it it is a transaction. Yeah, and I also think, you know, when it comes to second chances, I'm a great believer in atonement. But the fact is, as we know very well, in cases of sexual abuse, it is often the case that that victim's life is ruined or is impacted in a way that is unimaginable and and permanent or semi-permanent. You always hear of cases of people that, fall into depression or anxiety or mental health issues or have issues with their sexuality or their relationships or their self-esteem they might not be given a second chance like they might not be given a second chance in life why do we have to prioritize the second chance of the person accused and also that it's stated in his contract like a sort of contract has any kind of emotional Mm. bind and that that would provide women with any kind of safeguarding yeah. as well that the idea that it was sort of reframed in this quite corporate way yeah is quite strange i think that is such an important point i think that that women quite rightly could feel very uncomfortable about the fact that the only thing that could be stopping a man from behaving so badly again is a contractual obligation but also why is it a hollywood woman walking the walk and well, again, this is you know, again and again. This I happens. don't. I actually haven't looked at the cast list for that film, but I'm guessing that there are famous men attached to that film as well. What, why is the lead woman walked out? I, th- I think it's great that she has, but I just think it's slightly predictable that again it's the female lead who's being the conscientious objector to it all. I also think it's interesting that she is so complimentary and sweet about the director and talks about she how... She obviously feels really agonised. But, but he must have known who he was, who he was working with, surely. Or yes, maybe he didn't. That's an interesting point. Yeah. As in, I just... I, I don't know. It feels like it's so incumbent on I these suppose like, she, matriarchs she to isn't make all the fi- She isn't financially bound. She, she has earned enough money to be able to make those stands. Perhaps, I, I have no idea, maybe he's got a very large mortgage. <laughs> I'm not sure. We can only speculate. <laughs> we can only speculate on his mortgage. Skydance actually preempted a Ferrari because there was a careful couching of Laster's appointment. After announcing the hire, reports the LA Times, media chief exec David Ellison at Skydance Animation sent a long email to staff noting that Lasseter was contractually obliged to behave professionally, which is what Emma Thompson refers to. And they convened at a series of town halls in which Lasseter sort of apologised publicly for his past behaviour and asked to be given the chance to prove himself to his new staff. The idea of like convening at a series of town halls. Meanwhile, Morel Soraya, president of Paramount Animation, with whom Skydance has a distribution deal, took the highly unusual step of meeting with female employees to tell them that they could decline working with Lasseter. Do you think anyone will use that as an excuse for a duvet day? (laughs) I do wonder if that would have any knock-on effect on their payment or employment, because as you and I have said time and time again, to be a whistleblower is is a wonderful, commendable beautiful thing that can lead to great change it can lead to you know change at grassroots it can lead to change of legislation and revealing you know urgent truths but you have to have financial security to be able to do it and beyond that not only do you need financial security often you need a kind of emotional yeah i was about to say an emotional security i was reading um gina miller's memoir which i think is called rise up and gina miller successfully sued the government about brexit and she said in the beginning of her book um i have you know death threats every day and and i've you know sort of had to move house and like the way it's manifested in her life like i don't know if it obviously she wasn't a whistleblower in the sense that we all know about brexit but she was a whistleblower in the kind of legalese you know she said hold on there's like a loophole here that we could do something about i wouldn't have the strength to be Gina Miller, no. for example. I, th- I mean, I think it's brilliant that Paramount's president did do that. But again, it's falling to the women to do it. 
I think it's not about never hiring people like this ever again. But it does feel a bit daft to hire someone like that right now when we're kind of in the midst of renegotiating. And wouldn't it have been a more galvanising step for just that hire to have hired a woman who's, you know, really at the top of her game in the animation studio world? He only got fired in June and we're in what sort of... It was February or January when he was appointed. Shouldn't he just go away for like a couple of years and then you know, then you sort of can maybe think about, I just, you can possibly say that he's paid his dues in that sort of six months. Or had appropriate time for reflection or rehabilitation, if rehabilitation is what we want. I mean, I get that he's hugely successful. He was behind Frozen and Toy Story. He's obviously, you know, made made millions for studios. But I have to wonder if it's worth it for the studio, which is now all over the media. And I imagine that will affect films that they take on. Also, I refuse to believe that he is the only man in the world that can do that job. I'm sure there are plenty of men or even women who might be able to do that job who haven't had those accusations and that legal history behind them. Is redemption possible in the Me Too age? That's something The Telegraph asked. I think that's the next step. We've had the age of exposure, which will obviously carry on, but we've had that sort of big, you know, light bulb moment. And now what do we do post-exposure? I, I wonder if Emma Thompson would have minded if there had been, you know, five years in between John Lasseter being appointed to that role? It is, it's such a complicated question because, as you say, you want to be able to believe in redemption and also on a practical level, we can't say to these men that they can never, ever work again. But it just feels like their feelings, their power and their reputation and their safety is so often in these cases has been the thing that has been prioritized and actually the kind of comfort and well-being and confidence of their female peers and employees and employers and colleagues needs to take precedence now i think emma thompson dropping what is undoubtedly a huge fee for luck is um a really meaningful move the founder of women in hollywood melissa silverman said that it was one of the most significant moments of the Me Too movement because anything that kind of involves large amounts of money yeah. and therefore power has, has huge significance attached to it. You know, words and rallies are great, but it is action, particularly action which has high price tags attached that makes the real difference because money makes the world go round. As the journalist Matt Stoller tweeted, one dirty secret of Hollywood is Harvey Weinstein went down because his movies weren't making money anymore. But John Lasseter's movies still do make bazillions of dollars, mm. so he gets a second chance. Mm. And I think that's really uncomfortable and confronting and true. And, and really interesting. Mm. I think that's a really great way of framing it because there were whispers of that, that mm. the only reason Weinstein was brought down is because no one was terrified of him anymore because he wasn't yeah, the most successful yeah. man in Hollywood. I want to end this segment by saying once again how lucky we are to have Emma Thompson, Dame Emma Thompson, endlessly that intelligent. Makes it sound like she's here. <laughs> and she's here tonight. Uh, endlessly intelligent, kind, funny, and courageous. I once read her say in an interview that she hopes that Nanny McPhee is cast in bronze as a statue and erected in London somewhere. And I propose after this that it's high time that we erect another column in Trafalgar Square. But not of Nanny McPhee, just of No, Emma of just Emma Thompson in solid bloody gold. That's what <laughs> I would like. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to talk about self-discipline tonight because it's raised its head for me a lot in the last week. It concerns productivity and well-being and it's certainly the new strand to go zeitgeist in wellness in the workplace dialogue i've been trying out the pomodoro technique have you heard about this i swear that is a brand of pasta sauce i think it is also a tomato a pomodoro oh, tomato. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um which i learned about thanks to the high lows fabulous sub-editor anna Rado, who wrote a piece about her workflow so the pomodoro technique means that you go 25 minutes 
focused on a single task and then five minutes off and you repeat that four times and then you take a longer break for half an hour so it's like ah. it works out kind of two hour burst and then half an hour maybe lunch maybe a walk you can use an app to track it Anna uses the Pomodone app but um, I just use a stop clock on my phone and it's not wildly different to Sadie Smith's discipline which she talked about on the Today Show where she says she works uninterrupted with no email no phone no nothing from 10 till 2 and she said that four hours with no deviation or distraction is more than you could get done in you know nine hours with those other things yeah. coming in Dolly are you a disciplinarian no, not at all. And actually that, um, <laughs> I really struggle. Something when I was writing my book, someone told me that I do think is true is that as a writer, it might be the same with other kind of creators or artists, but as a writer, you can't do any more than three hours proper writing a day. Really? Yeah, apparently that is the kind of, someone's laughing at that. <laughs> Someone incredibly smug thinks that they can do triple that. Um, yeah, it's, apparently that's the kind of, that's the most... But you spent more than three hours, didn't you, right? Yeah, but time? within that, I'm also, like, staring at some cushions and <laughs> cleaning my oven and looking up You're the history of the Caesar salad on Wikipedia. You're doing that, that's for sure. <laughs> but no, when I listened to that Zadie Smith interview, I did... Do you remember I got really freaked out? I took that month off social media in the summer and a lot of that was because of that interview with her and she said, <laughs> so easily swayed, I am prime for a cult, I just want to say. Um, one of the reasons was, is something she said in it is she's like, I'm really hungry for life and I have loads of things that I want to read, I want to yes, do, people I, I want to meet, things that I want to experience, places I want to go. And, and she I, said, and to be a better writer, yeah, I, I have you to need be to like out that. and about and not working all the time. Totally. That made me, she's like so incredibly adjusted. That made me feel like way better. I was like, oh, that's great. I can go have some fun. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, like, I'm a big, big believer in the, the most important thing in a writer's arsenal is like fun, <laughs> like having experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really did think about the tension after I listened to that interview the tension between the appetite that I have for experience in life and yet the ways that I constantly throw obstacles in front mm. of myself that no one else is throwing there other than me like I'm fucking up for myself all the time by not giving myself space to do to explore the realms I want to explore either cognitively creatively or out in real life because I'm too busy going on Frankie Kokos's Instagram page Frankie Kukos's <laughs> I did that in Denmark when I was desperate to go to sleep and I'd been writing Is he all still night. singing? Uh, he's had a baby. He's married to a very lovely woman. Um, but you don't know, like, any celebrities. How do you know Frankie Kukosa? I don't know. I don't that's know. But, that's, but you know how these distraction trails happen. Bizarre. I mean, I think <laughs> lots, of, lots of people go, like, tits deep into really random kind of nostalgic stuff, don't they? Um... My favourite, as you know, is looking at pictures of Jamie Dornan and Kira Knightley in the early noughties. She's obsessed with that outfit. For the belts. belts. Yeah, she loves and their clothes. And they're like unbelievably low-slung jeans, like below the pubis. <laughs> so revolting. Um, it's quite trendy at the moment, self-discipline, as we know. But I feel like it really speaks to me as a person. And there are a few things that make me feel stupendously out of kilter. Not being able to read is one being away from my husband and baby um, for too long is another. And wasting my time is something that I find really, really stressful. And I self-flagellate so much when I waste time. And when I say waste time, I don't mean spending time with friends, reading, obviously, or watching TV or having a bath. I don't think of that as time wasted. I mean, like, random pottering on the internet. That, and like It's the pottering on the internet. Titivating and yeah. titillating or, like, watching shit when I should be working my time is so precious now that I have less available and that I'm paying for childcare essentially that I feel like if I'm really disciplined in like a manageable way then I will feel really fulfilled by that and I'll be able to then go and enjoy my life mm -hmm. knowing that I've been really productive and that's what I love is like productivity doesn't mean working like seven till nine productivity could mean four hours of like really really like engaged work yeah I interviewed um, Matt Haig and we talked about his... I can't wait to listen to that. I love him. Oh my him. God, he made me cry in the episode. So embarrassing listening back to it. Uh, but he, 
he said, well, I was asking him about Notes on a Nervous Planet, which is this amazing book he's written about, not just it's the brilliant. internet, but, but how modern life is impacting kind of our collective mental health. And we were talking about the time-wasting thing, the procrastination, the distraction, not allowing yourself to live, not, not allowing yourself to write, not allowing yourself to get your work done because you're wasting, you're in a cycle of just a frittering time. And he said the thing that is so toxic about that is not the wasting of time itself, it's the shame that it brings on you. And I think that's God, so like true. guilt. Yeah, because you get to the end of an afternoon oh. where you're meant to have written like three pieces and you're like, oh, all I've done is like gone on every sale and Zara and top shop and like yeah just you know being on candy crush um and sure. no i don't do that i was trying to think of something basically trying to be all contemporary it's highly tetris um and you do feel like self-loathing and embarrassed yeah. and like you're not responsible like a responsible adult in the world that has an effect on your confidence and self-esteem so then you're even less likely to get the stuff mm. done the next mm. day so it's a really really bad not only is it you know an impractical thing and it inhibits you from living and getting stuff done it also just makes you feel terrible about yourself I think that having self-imposed barriers because no one else is going to do that for you and I'm quite interested in the idea of containment at the moment and I mean that in all senses of the world so physically containing myself so being out and about less being kind of more rooted to my home to my desk to my neighbourhood because that keeps me calm and productive but mentally contained as well so being more private about you know certain things of how I'm feeling or try not to be emotionally messy because when I don't holster my emotions or funnel them in a kind of thoughtful way to the people who love me and who I trust then I feel unraveled and chaotic and it doesn't make me feel yeah. productive in the workplace I get the sort that. of best example of that is like being at a wedding and being really drunk and like sobbing to the stranger next to you now that is like fine if that makes you feel okay but that to me makes me feel like like I've gone to pieces so I don't mean like discipline as being your own whipping boy although that is very Catholic so quite me but rather just like knowing yourself and protecting yourself yeah and I think it does just any kind of self-imposed and regulated and moderate and thoughtful boundaries are always a good thing I think that a good way of kind of spending your time and stretching out your time is by doing proper compartmentalizing. So I've noticed that when there's like a cross-pollination in my life of work time and free time, that's when I start getting stressed out and time seems to slip away from me. So when I'm at dinner with my friends and I'm checking my work email or when I'm at work and all I'm doing is WhatsApping a friend about her boyfriend or whatever, I think that if you can try it, the more you can compartmentalize that time, you can kind of really relish the activity. There's an amazing book by a man called Arnold Bennett of the omelette fame, which I also recommend highly. And um, have you had an Arnold Bennett omelette? No, okay. Um, But he wrote this book that was in response to the rise of um, white-collar workers in 1910. And it was about how to get more out of your time and how to feel like you're getting the most out of your life and and spending it wisely. Um, And there are all these different theories he has of how you have to recalibrate hours and minutes. Something he says in it that I think about all the time is... If you work for eight hours a day and you sleep for eight hours a day, that still leaves you with eight hours free a day. So how are you spending them? Mm. And let's face it, most people aren't sleeping for eight hours a day. So something that he says in the book is he proposes, and obviously it's, it's kind of out of date in many ways because it was written in the 1900s, but it feels very prescient for now. And something he says is you need to think of a, of a 24-hour day as split into two days. So what you do with those 16 hours of sleep and free time, you need to be, you know, considered and careful about. Yeah, that's so interesting. And also things change, but they don't really change. No, it's kind of comforting, isn't it? Yeah. And I think as well, not everyone is invested in your well-being, particularly as a freelancer. You know, the person emailing you isn't emailing you on your schedule or giving you deadlines according to your schedule. So the only way to have any kind of agency of your own schedule is to purposefully choose the work technique or the modes of communication that work for you yeah and I've found as well that as long as you communicate that to people clearly and in advance then normally they're kind whether it's friends or family or colleagues normally they're they're kind of cooperative about that 
I have just written a piece for Elle about the out of office because I became obsessed with Alan Partridge's out of <laughs> office that went viral. Um, Google it if you haven't seen it. It's very good. Won't wash with me. But I'm a big fan of the out of office and I think it becomes more kind of paramount in contemporary time. And I'm toying with the idea of starting to check my email three times a day. That's so a breakfast, good idea. lunch and dinner. Um, but the issue with that is that I email people a lot for the work I do like quotes in a piece for example but Zadie Smith says um it's real like sponsored by Zadie I Smith know. is that what she does is she just makes a mark in her writing yeah. when she needs to check a fact and then she goes and does yeah. like a or Google, look up a word yeah does a Google after it I thought that, that again that was something that really stuck with me that she said um that if you give yourself half an hour at the end of every day where you reply to all the emails you look up the words, you contact the person, you get the quote for the interview. If you do that, then... then you compartmentalise. It's, yeah. yeah, and also, she said, as a way of that's a, that's a half-hour activity. And then for some reason, and I certainly know this, if you don't do that, it becomes a low-level all-day activity. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're getting back and forth with people in emails, which I'm like as you know, very, very anti, and I don't think we need to do. So I think there's something that people perhaps would respect more and something in the syntax of the way that you're, you're speaking with people is if you have that one part of the day where you talk and that's it. Mm. I'm also really interested in the idea that self-discipline like protects others as well as you. And that was something I hadn't thought about until Wednesday evening when I was hosting this panel on uh, leadership and there was Sharma Dean Reid who uh, started War Nails and then Beauty Stack. And there was Timo Bolt, who was one of the co-founders of Gusto, which is the you know, fresh um, recipe delivery service. They're both hugely successful. And something they both said is that how your mood is when you're a leader really affects the rest of the office. So if you're low mood and you go into the office, then everyone else feels like that because it yeah. kind of reverberates around um, because you hold the power. So both of them said that in times like that, they don't go in. They send a text to whoever's you know immediately under them and they say, I'm in a really bad mood today, so I'm going to work from home or I'm going to work from a nearby cafe. And I think that's tremendous self-discipline and self-knowledge because it's, and it's kind of admirable leadership because it's like, I'm not going to be the best leader today. The best leader I can be is to not like conduct this mood around the office, but to be like just a little bit pulled back. While still doing your work. I totally agree. And I think it's the same with you wouldn't infect an office with the flu and you shouldn't infect a whole kind of team well i think you have infected me i've infected everyone this is but dolly said so how's your throat and i was like oh it feels like a knife back there and she was like that's how this started and i was like i wonder where i got that from (laughs) um but i also do quite admire the resistance polly vernon said in her column for grazia this week she was talking about how micro scheduling which is basically what we're kind of talking about makes her feel panicked and that you know a joyous life is actually one of macro scheduling to allow for unscheduled freestyle happenings yeah, and to avoid I'm with her on that. your friends calling you a sociopath. Yeah, no, I do. I, it's a balance for me, particularly when I'm planning in my diary. I'll look at it and it's like, you've got to leave some loosey-goosey time. You love a loosey-goosey. Yeah, but guitar. then equally, for, yeah, it, de- if it depends. shopping. Each, each person kind of needs different levels of control to, to ironically feel free. Totally, that's why I think it's just about self-knowledge. Amy O'Dell, a journalist in New York who writes for The Cut, BuzzFeed and Business of Fashion, tweeted... I know I'm supposed to bury my phone in my yard and delete all my social media accounts and enjoy an enlightened presence, but at the end of the day, all I want to do is lie under something fluffy and stare at myriad feeds of trash on my phone until my brain rots, so sue me. <laughs> but truly, uh, I think I know people who do that, and it yeah, really doesn't touch not. the size. Exactly. Like your husband, I don't think Ollie gets affected at all. The looks at trash memes. all day long. He sends absolutely us. great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I have to compartmentalise and contain my life better than that. I think that's because I'm more porous than him. Yeah. He's, he's pretty intrinsic. He doesn't yeah. really do anything because anyone else is like outside, whereas you and me are sort of like blades in the wind. Yeah, <laughs> like totally. Wishing back and forth. And I think, as we said, it is about being unjudgmental about what other people need. And sadly for me... I do need quite a lot of self-discipline in able in, to make myself feel kind of in control and content and free. Um, but yeah, that's something that I'm just okay with now. And there's not one way to be happy. Totally. Should we end on that? I think we should end on that rather stoned note. <laughs> okay, we're going to do five minutes if anyone has any questions. Oh, do you want me to you, do David go, Dimbleby? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great question. Top three books of all time. 
Oh, God. I find this one so difficult. You go first. <laughs> Any Human Heart by William Boyd. Yeah, that's a good one. Heartburn by Nora Ephron. And, ooh. Hunting, you like hunting for fishing and <gasps> you girls. You do well done. You know me better than hunting, me. Fishing. The girls go to hunting and fishing. Um, I would say I just always go for a buildings romance. So probably like Catcher in the Rye or um, my favorite books of all time. God, I can't think. I literally can't think. Eat, One, pray, love. Not eat, pray, love. Um, I love One Day by David Nichols. I love The oh, Interestings love by Meg Wallitzer. Yeah. Those are goodies. I can't think. Yeah, sorry. A bit. It's really Ma- hard Money by Martin Amis. That's a good one. The Bell Jar. That's a light, rollicking read. <laughs> Chicklet, really. <laughs> Any other cues? Any advice for moving in with your best friend? Um, exercise, patience, and kindness, I suppose. So just like try and think of them as your friend first. That's a great piece of advice. Because it can be... Cause I forget. I haven't, I haven't... I've lived with my husband for so long, so I forget. And, and you can sort of be meaner to each other when you're in a relationship, I find, with like friends. You have to be... like You, know, you can't be like, why the fuck do you never empty the bin? You complete moron. <laughs> Whereas better or for worse, you can do that when you're married. Yeah. Um, so it's just like, it's not a massive deal. Also, there's that weird thing, I swear, when you're younger, where you're like, well, I'm not doing their washing up. It's like, do their fucking washing up. It's not a yeah. big deal. Karma. Yeah. Totally. But also, like, it's what I said earlier about, like, gauging the fact that everyone has bad days. So it's just making sure that you're kind of assessing all the time who needs more care than the and other And don't person. do that thing. Because I always think this is really bad and this can like create like a difficult atmosphere if you've had a bad day don't go into a room and like slam the door it's like i think that's a really weird tension when someone if you're sharing a house with someone they come home and then they just go into their room and you're like oh god like come home and be like i had a really shit day yeah do you have time yeah for a glass of wine so that you kind of start with this like honest dialogue rather than vulnerability yeah rather than not sharing stuff because i don't think anyone's going to be like no i can't talk to you about your shit day I lived with my girlfriends for five years and I tell you the day that I moved out I was very grateful that I had put my initials in the front of all of my books like an assassin (laughs) truly so I recommend that is that the friends that you then dressed up as like a hoover afterwards (laughs) when Dolly moved out it was like this big ceremony because everything's a ceremony with Dolly and her friends and so when they were like disbanding this house they dressed up as something meaningful I don't you might have already know about this but I'm going to retell it they dressed up as something meaningful from the years they'd shared a flat together so Dolly was a packet of cigarettes India was a Farley was a hoover dragging her nozzle behind her (laughs) quite phallic that and as she got drunker she was a bin God, you were all such revolting things. I know. Time for one more. <laughs> so schoolmistress. At the back. Oh, that's such a not. lovely question, particularly because there was a compliment very <laughs> stylishly embedded in it, which are my favourite questions. So the question was, uh, did we anticipate how important the high-low would be for a lot of women? Thank you, that's very sweet. Um, no, I don't think we did no. at all. No. Just wanted an excuse to chat. Yeah, yeah. it's been an immense surprise. It's a surprise every week. Every week, now this I will sound most boasting. of our careers, to be honest, surprises, I, know. I think it's like... Right place, right time. Yeah, unstrategic. This will sound bossy, and Pandora will make me cut this out. She doesn't like when we praise our own podcast. That's such a, I'd retweet everything. <laughs> every week at the moment, other than fucking Joe Rogan last week, every week we're number one in the iTunes chart when we go out. Yeah, Charlie says that's karma. <laughs> what? Joe because was, we've Joe was number Joe one Rogan and we were number two because <laughs> we were being so bitchy. Can we talk about the fact the last Joe Rogan episode is four and a half hours long? It's just bad editing. Anyway, we haven't answered your question. Um, every time... Just use it as an excuse to talk about Joe We are obsessed with Joe Rogan. Um, yeah, every time I see that at the moment, it, this, it's, it's happened like so incrementally, this, this the kind of success of it. Every time we see that every week, we're just like giddy. We're like schoolgirls, as, as is our producer, Charlie. We're all so excited, and it feels like such an honour to have so many people listening to us, and we really, really appreciate that loyalty, that dogged loyalty and support. Yeah, no, it's 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 weird but lovely, and we both really like the idea of making other women feel less alone or more understood. 
not that I don't really care if men feel alone on no, the No, I don't. They're fine. But <laughs> women we're quite into, so... Thank you very much for coming to the live episode of the Hilo, recorded at Pandora's flagship store, so weird, in Marble Arch. Thank you so much, Pandora, for partnering with us. And um, all the money from tonight's ticket sales go to Overcome, the ovarian cancer charity, and it is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. You can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Helps boost us in the charts and helps other people find us. Um, don't tweet us or email us about the show notes. We won't reply. Is that everything? Uh, yes, you can write us a letter. Care of Grace O'Leary. <laughs> Hi, Grace. Talent, who is waving there, wearing the lovely yellow dress. Um, I think that's it. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.